The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. With dozens if not hundreds of new Civil War books coming out every year, where does an aspiring author go for an unexplored topic? Some of them just go to the 126 volumes of the official records and look for some minor engagement so obscure that no one's written a book about it yet. Occasionally, however, someone takes it to the next level and explains why an otherwise minor and obscure engagement can be a fascinating window into the very nature of Civil War history. That's what Thomas E. Parson has done in Work for Giants, the Campaign and Battle of Tupelo Harrisburg, Mississippi, June-July 1864. We'll talk with Tom Parson tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you as usual from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University, part of the UNC system, but not the part in Chapel Hill or Raleigh or Greensboro. It's the part in Greenville, North Carolina, where I speak only for myself, not for the History Department or ECU or UNC in general, nor will my guest speak for anyone but himself. And with legality is out of the way, we can say this is 
the best and worst of times of the academic year. It's May 2015. Uh, the weather is beautiful. Uh, the spring blossoms are not all gone. It's still very pretty outside. It's a great time of year to be done with faculty evaluations, a chore I hope never to do again. Uh, having to grade my peers is uh, presumptuous at best. It's a great time to be signing a big stack of uh, scholarship awards and graduation certificates for all the history majors. Uh, it's especially exciting this Friday to see them here on campus uh, when we do our departmental celebration and their families are here. The first generation graduates are uh, the best. Uh, the, the excitement and pride of their families really makes it worthwhile to be in higher education. And I'm very much looking forward to that. On the other hand, just to keep the perspective, uh, here's some inside baseball. This department likes to uh, cooperate with our mission, regional mission of regional transformation by teaching early college second life courses. We teach high school students uh, beginning history courses online. Seems like a good idea. Give them a head start. Something like US AP history or European AP history. Well, I found out this week that uh, I assume this was a service. This was something we were doing for the uh, good of the, the university. But I was told this week that if we hire additional people to do it, using not our money, but that of the uh, Continuing Studies Program, uh, they're the ones who run it and they, they hire the instructors. If we authorize them to hire a history instructor, that counts against our uh, asset list, our order of battle, as it were. So each time they hire a full-time person to teach one of their early college courses, the history department becomes responsible for generating another 708 student credit hours. That's our faculty equivalent. That's bad enough, but then I found out that because the early college program is off model, the hours that those faculty generate don't count. So each time early college hires somebody to teach history, we are responsible for generating hundreds of new credit hours, and we can't count any of the ones that those instructors actually generate. It's a world so crazy that if it didn't happen, I wouldn't believe it. I'm confident we'll get that fixed because it's just too contradictory. You count them the same way. You can't count them differently uh, for, for whether they count toward our roster or their hours count, but you got to count them consistently. Anyway, I'm still foaming at the mouth over that. That just seemed like one step too far into Wonderland uh, for academic administration, and I'm pretty confident that we'll get that fixed before too long. In happier news, it's almost time for the annual Civil War tour with Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours, the This Hallowed Ground tour. And I have to say, I'm really enjoying working with the folks at Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours. They're putting together very nice uh, graphic versions of the book list I submitted to them and all kinds of good stuff. And I, I'm just really looking forward to going. Uh, it'll be fun. It's fun to drive up and get to stop and visit places on the way. It's fun to drive home, visit other places, and it's fun to be part of it. And so if any of you listening can sign up, I'm sure they will take you at this late date and uh, join us on the bus tour in a couple weeks. It'll be fun. In the meantime, you can find out what we're doing here at Civil War Talk Radio by checking in at the 
best of all possible websites, www.impedimentsofwar.org, where Mark Gaffney keeps things in motion and up to date. And we find out next week, we'll be talking with Brian Jordan, author of Marching Home, Union Veterans and Their Unending Civil War. Should be an interesting uh, program. No program is set for the following week. I'll come up with something. I'm looking... I'm confident that will happen. And then the next week will be the uh, the annual Civil War Tour no sh- live show that week. And then I'll be back with more uh, upon my return in uh, the beginning of month of June. We'll do a few more shows in June, take our summer hiatus, and rejoin you in August or early September. In the meantime, you can also contribute to Civil War Talk Radio with your uh, hard-earned donations. I found out today our Air conditioner is on the fritz, a few thousand to be poured down that unfortunate uh, tech, uh, maintenance uh, hole. So the Civil War Book Fund could be diverted to home repair or to you know, a bottle of old you know, Knob Creek or something just to console myself with the fact that we don't have working air conditioning. Who knows what it could be used for? could be used to buy a book. Uh, that's what usually happens. It's not tax deductible if you donate to... Civil War Talk Radio from the Impediments of War website, uh, but your donation will be much appreciated. Well, it can be used to buy books like the one we're talking about tonight, Work for Giants, the Campaign and Battle of Tupelo, Harrisburg, Mississippi, June and July 1864. The author is Thomas E. Parson. Uh, Tom, are you there? And see if we got the sound. Oh, you there got we me? go. Hey, hey, Tom, I can hear hey, you. Hey, Jerry, how are you? Good. Uh, let me start by apologizing for the 14th time. Uh, two, three weeks ago, I sent you an email with the wrong date, uh, asking you to call in on a different date than tonight, and you obliged and called in promptly on time. In 11 years of doing Civil War talk radio, I've never sent the wrong date to a guest. It's one of the few things I haven't done wrong yet. And you were the first, and I'm really sorry that that happened, and I appreciate you called in, and even more that you are calling back tonight so we can really talk about your fine book. So thank you for doing that. Indeed, I'm delighted to. Well, the uh, when I, I, you were a recommendation. Uh, Civil War Talk Radio listeners frequently email me with recommendations, and uh, a listener from Mississippi said, uh, you you got to get this guy. And so I started reading the book and said, yeah, let's do this. Uh, And from there, I started calling the Corinth Interpretive Center, where I had a phone number for you. Uh, Tell us what the Corinth Interpretive Center is and and what you do do there. The The Corinth Civil War Interpretive Center is a unit of Shiloh National Military Park. Shiloh has three battlefields. Uh, Of course, Shiloh. Uh, here at the the Corinth site and Davis Bridge, Tennessee. Here at Corinth, we have a a very large visitor center, much larger than the one at Shiloh, and we actually try and get all visitors to come here first. There are three big rooms of exhibits, three films, interactive exhibits, a a whole lot to see. And it places the visitor in, in the context of the Civil War just prior to Shiloh. And it gets them ready for a visit up there. And, and it also explains the, uh, the, the very large battle that occurred right outside our back door, the largest battle in the state. What, what's left of the battlefield at Corinth? 
Well, the core battlefield where we are, we have a 17-acre site, which is the site of Battery Robinette, the key to the Union defensive position on October 4th. Aside from that, we also have a a wonderful earthwork uh, site, about 15 acres, Battery F it's called, where there was heavy fighting on the the day prior. And uh, a number of sites that have to do with the siege of Corinth, which took place in May of 62. Great earthworks. Uh, Most of those are Union-built siege works, but also a a large portion of the Confederate Beauregard line is intact. There's a a lot to see in Corinth. You don't come here with an hour, you come here with a day. Well, there you go. I'll have to to do that. Now, it took, as I recall, it took General Halleck about 30 days to get from Pittsburgh Landing to Corinth. How long does it take to drive today? About half an hour. <laughs> That's much better. <laughs> so, so you can you can. Uh, I mean, you wouldn't want to cram both into a single day. Oh no, you certainly can. And most people do. We mm-hmm. we just suggest you come here in the morning. We open at eight. Spend a couple hours here at the center. Maybe visit one or two of the outlying sites, and then make your way up to Shiloh. And it makes for one really good day. Now, for people that want the the more in depth immersion, we can keep you busy in this area for a week. There's there there are battlefields in every direction. Well, that that is one of the fascinating things about uh, Civil War touring is is you do find new stuff all the time, and there's there are things off the beaten track that uh, that people like you can tell us about. In your book, in your introduction, you make the the point that you were once reminded uh, Shiloh was not fought in a vacuum, and you said that had an influence on your your thinking about Civil War history. Could you elaborate on that? Well, sure. When I got interested in the Civil War, I was in the Navy and I was stationed down in New Orleans. And I was coming up to Shiloh, oh, at least twice a month. My my wife's family lived close by. And every opportunity, I went to the park and I started to study it. And then I got very interested and I, and I thought I knew it really well. And all I had been doing was studying pretty much just the Battle of Shiloh. And uh, the historian at the time, George Reeves, uh, sent me a very nice letter encouraging me to, to expand my horizons and, and, and look at other things. And I was very young and very excited, and uh, I did. And I started reading uh, a lot of other material that he suggested and then things that other people did. And, uh, my gosh, there was this whole other civil war going on that I hadn't read about. <laughs> well, that that's one of the things I... I liked about this book was that it does put events in context uh, and and certainly that's a danger I think in Civil War writing I'm, I'm sure you've read books like this I know our listeners have where somebody is really just just totally taken with some particular battle and knows more about it than anyone else in the world and, and puts together five or six or seven hundred pages of extraordinary detail and gets it published by a specialty publisher and I find a little of that goes a long way with me. When I'm done, I'm like, okay, I know all about the Battle of Horse Cave or, or something, but what was the point? And uh, it, it seems to me that that's a real risk we run in Civil War historiography. Indeed, and it was uh, one of the things that led me to this book. Um, the events that happened during this, this very hot July of 64 they're not determined by what's happening in Mississippi. They're determined by what's happening in North Georgia. So, 
Let, let's start. We've got a few minutes before the first break. We can start laying out the groundwork of what happened here. Uh, in in the summer of 1864, Sherman's going toward Atlanta. Grant's in the Overland Campaign. What's happening in Mississippi? Uh, not very much, actually. Uh, there's some activity that continues around the Vicksburg area in southern Mississippi, north of Baton Rouge. Um, it's quiet enough for General Stephen D. Lee, who's in command of the uh, department out here, to send General Forrest on a, uh, on a raid to break the uh, Nashville and Chattanooga Railroad. Uh, had uh, there been other activity in the state, he certainly would not have been let go at that time. But it was, it was very quiet in this district. So, and the reason he was sent was to uh, to disrupt Sherman's campaign uh, headed down towards Atlanta, which is being supplied by that single-track railroad. So, wait, just so I have it clear, and visitors use your mental maps of uh, southern Tennessee, northern Alabama, northern Mississippi, the railroad from Nashville, or from, from Memphis, due east toward Chattanooga, that's the railroad... No, the, the railroad. The, the, you're, you're you're thinking of the Memphis and Charleston, which goes right, right past our back door here. Right. But the railroad that Sherman was using at this time went from Nashville, which is almost in the center of the state. That's that's what I thought. Okay. East down to uh, Chattanooga. So a force is going to raid. He's not just raiding northern Mississippi. He's going on a big time circle up into Tennessee. He's, maybe raid, into he's riding in a direct route from. Uh, he's in the area around Tupelo. Mm-hmm. And he's headed northeast through Alabama and into Middle Tennessee, where he's going to try and cut this railroad and do as much damage to it as he can. Um, he, he's no more than three days on this raid when a messenger comes to find him to tell him that a Union column is marching out of Memphis into North Mississippi, which forces his recall back into the Magnolia State. And this is a uh, force led by Samuel Sturgis. Not only were the Confederates aware of the weakness, this this Achilles heel of Sherman's supply line, Sherman was aware of it as well. And he had uh, sent Sturgis on this expedition into into North Mississippi for the purpose of distracting Forrest, keeping him in Mississippi. Well, we're going to take a short break and find out just how successful Sturgis was at this effort. We're talking today with Tom Parson. He's the author of Work for Giants, the campaign and battle of Tupelo, Harrisburg, Mississippi, June, July, 1864. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at VoiceAmericaTRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN or follow along with us at VoiceAmericaTRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. 
Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Tom Parson, author of Work for Giants, the Campaign and Battle of Tupelo, Harrisburg, Mississippi, in June and July of 1864. We were talking in the first segment a little bit about the outset of the campaign in the summer of 64 as Nathan Bedford Forrest takes his Confederate cavalry raiding up against uh, Sherman's supply line as Sherman moves toward Atlanta. But out from Memphis comes a Union column under Samuel Sturgis, and uh, things don't go well for General Sturgis, do they? No, they do not. Forrest returns to uh, to Mississippi, and on June the 10th, at Bryce's crossroads, he decisively defeats Sturgis. Sturgis's force outnumbers Forrest two to one, but in one of the most what's considered the perfect battle of the Civil War, uh, Forrest just destroys Sturgis's force and sends it reeling back to Memphis. Um, there are very few people that would admit. Or, or lay claim that Sturgis was actually successful in his campaign because his chief goal was to keep Forrest in Mississippi. He lost his army doing so, but uh, Forrest remained in Mississippi and away from Sherman's supply line. So it's a costly way to accomplish your mission. <laughs> you you don't win a war that way, that's for certain. <laughs> no. So the Union decides they'll try this again, and... Uh, after uh, well, go ahead. They, they, they're going to they're going to try to keep Forrest in Mississippi somehow. Yeah, so the need is still there to keep him in Mississippi, and as luck would have it, at the on the same date that Sturgis is taking a, a beating down at uh, Bryce's Crossroads, Brigadier General Alexander, I say Alexander Andrew Jackson Smith, A.J. Smith, is arriving in Memphis with two divisions of the 16th Corps. They're just returning from the Red River campaign. Uh, Sherman is trying to figure out what he wants to do with those two divisions, and he decides to send them into uh, North Mississippi to once again deal with Forrest. And Smith puts together a a small but powerful army of veterans, 14,000 strong, that he will lead into North Mississippi. Smith is a, a, a better general, or and not somebody, not a extremely well-known figure, but an interesting guy. 
he's he's fascinating to me. He uh, he never loses a battle during the war. He is uh, constantly on the move. Uh, he's being sent from pillar to post throughout the war, wherever uh, something is flaring up. Well, they send A.J. Smith and his segment of the 16th Corps, which is nicknamed the, the Guerrillas. And they're a, a very tough veteran outfit. Why don't we know more about him, then? Why isn't he more famous? Oh, you need to read this book, then. <laughs> well, well, I know more. <laughs> he, he should be. He should be. He, he's yes. the only one that comes out of the Red River campaign without mud all over his face. He's uh, it, It's his men that... that George Thomas is waiting on at Nashville, November, December, before uh, striking out against Hood. He's waiting for, for A.J. Smith to arrive. Smith is sent over into to Missouri at one point to run down Price. He's at the end of the war. He's in Mobile, uh, taking Spanish Fort and Fort Blakely for the north. He's, he's, he's constantly on the move. He's a fascinating sus- figure. So... In this campaign, he starts out, uh, you know, as his predecessors have, have done, uh, marching into northern Mississippi with the idea of, of uh, you know, making contact with Forrest. But you describe in some detail the campaign, and uh, you really get a sense from the book that the, the Confederate commander, Stephen D. Lee, and Forrest, his highest-ranking subordinate, don't really know what to make of Smith. They don't. They can't figure out what he's up to. He, uh, he being Smith, was, was very successful throughout this campaign of fooling the Confederate high command as to what his intentions were. On a number of occasions, he sent diversions which were very successful, and he would march one road and send a diversion down another. Uncharacteristically, Forrest is reacting to someone else. He is not calling the terms of this campaign. Forrest, he, fa- he falls for, for, for Smith's moves. He does. Um, to defend Forrest somewhat at this point, he, he's not well. He, he's exhausted. He's, he's suffering from boils, which for a cavalryman is, is, is you know, the blisters on the feet of an infantryman. And he isn't well, and he, he, he does convey that at one point to uh, General Lee. And, and he seems to be off his game a little bit during this entire campaign. He is not the aggressive force that you see so often during the war. So we see uh, Smith moving his forces down uh, sort of south by southeast into uh, the heart of Mississippi, and then he suddenly sort of fakes right and breaks to the left and marches due east towards Tupelo, which is on a key railroad line. Uh, what's the Confederate response to that? There was some confusion because General Lee and General Forrest had, had believed that they had conveyed what Smith's purpose was, that he was marching further south to Oklahoma, and they prepared a, an ambush for him, a trap. They built extensive earthworks. And they were going to draw Smith down further into Mississippi and then uh, deliver the same type of welcome that uh, was given to Sturgis. However, Smith smelled out this ambush, and uh, on the morning of July 13th, he steals a march 
on Lee and Forrest. And it's several hours before they realize that, that uh, he's marching in a completely different direction than they had expect. They had actually begun to believe that Smith was returning to Memphis, that he had gotten scared and was running back. And on the contrary, he was uh, headed towards Tupelo, a, uh, a new town that's only four years old, on the Mobile and Ohio Railroad. And that is one of Smith's goals of this campaign, is to destroy a section of that railroad. It's completely up to him where he destroys it. So he's marching now east with the Confederates to his south. They're, they're not sure where he's headed. But once they find out, now Forrest has Smith's army strung out on this road, marching to the east. Uh, and a marching army in the Civil War is always vulnerable. The, the troops are strung out. They're not in a compact body. Uh, why didn't Forrest just, once he figured out what was going on, why didn't he chase after him and, and cut him to pieces? He actually did. Um, Forrest, with a brigade of Mississippi cavalry under Hinchy Mabry, were ordered by Lee to come up on Smith's rear, engage Smith's rear, and hopefully stop the column while Lee, with two other divisions, would strike out along a parallel road to the south and then attack that column in the flank. Um, it, it just did not work out the way that Lee and Forrest had hoped. Forrest was, was stymied in every attempt to bring the, uh, the Union to, to, to fight, to make them turn. Uh, two attempts to break the line, once by Chalmers' division, the next by Abraham Buford's, were both uh, stopped very decisively. And Smith, who kept his line very compact, and was, they were marching very fast, and they were able to make it into Harrisburg, which is two miles west of Tupelo. They were able to arrive there shortly before sundown. One of the things uh, that I enjoyed about this book are the maps of these small engagements on the road. Uh, there are maps of all the, the engagements that you talk about, but they really give a sense of the, the scope of these battles. The battlefields are no more than a mile, uh, three-quarters to a mile uh, across, and you can see where the individual regiments are engaging one another, and it, it's in contrast to the you know enormous field of Chancellorsville, let's say, it, it's really on a human scale. You can get a sense of what these men were facing on, on those hot days. Well, these two small fights on the road to... Uh to Harrisburg, they are, uh, they're shown very well in the book. My cartographer, Dave Roth of Blue and Gray Magazine, he did a great job with these. Mm-hmm. And these are small fights, so we're able to show it right down to the regimental level. Although when it, we get into the, the main battle itself the next day, uh, the, the scale, the scope is much larger as, as the two armies are, are fully engaged rather than just brigade action at best. So on that next day, uh, Smith uh, successfully gets his troops into Tupelo. He gets on the railroad, accomplishes the mission, uh, and he's able to set up his army, uh, draw it up in in line of battle facing to the west where the pursuing Confederates are coming from. Does he get to choose the battlefield? He does. He uh he stops two miles west of Tupelo. His, his cavalry is sent into town, and they, they do all the, the, the dirty work on the railroad. But he halts his infantry and artillery 
at uh, Harrisburg, which is almost a ghost town at this point of the war because all of the residents had moved to Tupelo, where the railroad was now located. And there's a, a great piece of high ground there just to the east of Harrisburg. Uh, Smith notes that immediately, and he deploys his infantry along this ridge. And it's a large horseshoe shape with uh, his flanks guarded by swamps. It's just a very enviable position. And uh, he's hoping that the uh, Confederates will have a sense of urgency and attack him. Well, if if one knows much Civil War tactical history, anybody who's read about Malvern Hill or Pickett's Charge or Marie's Heights at Fredericksburg or any any place where you let the enemy dig in on high ground and let and try to go up and get them, uh, with the exception of Missionary Ridge, uh, it doesn't work. It does Is that not. what the Confederates are going to do? They do indeed, and uh, it, it's this burden that's on the shoulders of, of 30-year-old Stephen Dill Lee. He's got an enormous department that he is in charge of with very limited amount of troops, and he has threats from a half dozen different locations. And he's mustered together an army of 9,600 men. And it's still well short of what... Uh, what Smith has put in the field, but it's a very sizable force. But time is against him. He cannot keep this army together in one place with all of these other threats to the department. Sooner or later, someone is going to, to realize that there's a vacuum there that they can take advantage of. He has to act, and he knows this. He, he has the option of, of sitting in place and hoping that Smith will attack him, or even hoping that, that Smith will run out of rations and will be forced to return to Memphis. But uh, he feels too much of an urgency. And he and Forrest do come up with a plan to attack. There is debate to this day whether Forrest is, uh, is fully in agreement with Lee on the need to attack, this, this frontal attack. But in... Uh, in his official report, in his well, it's not an official report. It's it's a it's a report that Lee writes years later. He did say that he and Forrest were in perfect agreement, in harmony. But the plan was for four Confederate brigades to march out together in line and attack the Union on these heights. Um, they actually were not dug in at this point. They were just behind a, a rise on the hill and laying down in high weeds. That's all the protection they had at that point. But the, uh, the uh, plan that the Confederates had put together fell apart very early in the, in the fight. So, and that's again not something unusual in Civil War battles for, for units to fail to be coordinated. Um, you mentioned that, that Stephen D. Lee wrote his report or his, his account of this battle uh, really decades later, in which he claimed he and Forrest were in agreement. When he wrote that, uh, Forrest was in his grave for some years, yeah. so he couldn't respond. Uh, do you think Forrest really was in agreement? Well, Forrest is, is, is never shy of, of, of <laughs> stating how he feels, and there's no indication in, in Forrest's official report that he had any issue with this uh, with this plan of attack. He had stated in his official report that when 
Smith had begun his flank maneuver, his, his, um, his flanking march, stealing the march, that it was determined at that point that they would pursue and they would give battle wherever the enemy presented it. Well, Smith is presenting battle here in, in, uh, in Harrisburg. So this is where uh, this is where the enemy is, and this is where they will strike him. Uh, the battle itself goes as one might expect when you go uphill against a dug-in enemy, especially when the, the Confederates launch uncoordinated brigade-sized attacks. And uh, with just a few minutes till our next break, let me just uh, sort of skip ahead and, and give the reader the opportunity to read. Uh, the incentive to get this book and read all about how this battle unfolds. Uh, but skip ahead to the spoiler, the, the attacks don't work. They fail. The Confederates, uh, you know, night falls and, and the Union are still on the heights and still held their position. But the, but that doesn't end, uh, I mean, that ends the, the main course of the fighting that day, but there's, there's still more to go. Uh, in particular, Forrest thinks about attacking at night, and that's very unusual in the Civil War. Uh, did he do it? Did, why, why did he? He did. Actually, it was supposed to be a reconnaissance that seems to have gotten a little bit out of hand. He wanted to uh, explore the possibility of a flank attack in the morning, and he takes a, uh, a rather beat-up brigade, Rucker's brigade under under Duckworth, and. A long evening ride to come up on the uh, the Union left flank, but they're unaware that the Union has brought in their flank over over a half a mile, and the Union is not where they expect them to be. And when they encounter uh, skirmishers of the USCT who fall back fairly easily, the Confederate brigade gets out of hand and they charge. And this this night battle ensues over on the south end of the battlefield. Forrest said it, it was one of the most terrific fights that he had ever been in. There, there are relatively few casualties, but uh, that was his first night action as well, and uh, very impressive with with uh, the sky lit up by thousands of muskets. Indeed. But the attack does fail, and it uh, it signals to the north that the uh, the south did have intentions of. Uh, of trying to flank their position. So you mentioned the the USCT, United States Colored Troops. That, of course, adds another dimension to the battle because Fort Pillow, the the massacre of black uh, troops as they surrender, has already taken place by Forrest's men. So you've got uh, uh, that dimension added as well. We're going to take another short break now, come back, talk more with Tom Parson about the battle uh, at Tupelo Harrisburg in June and July, the campaign in June and July of 1864. His book is Work for Giants. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. 
Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Tom Parson, author of Work for Giants, the Campaign and Battle of Tupelo, Harrisburg, Mississippi, June and July of 1864. We've been talking about the battle at Harrisburg uh, or Tupelo. Tom, does a battle go by the name of Battle of Tupelo or Harrisburg? My goodness, it certainly depends on who you're talking to. <laughs> there are some local folks that, that, that just threatened to string me up if I called it the Battle of Tupelo. Um, <laughs> that's hmm. what it's called in the official records although many okay. at the time did call it Harrisburg because that is where the fight takes place. Uh, now, generally, uh, the, in, in that, I'm sorry? Yeah. Let me ask this question. On the first day, around the, the, the main day of the fighting, the Confederates go uphill, they are pushed back. After Pickett's charge uh, fails at Gettysburg, Abraham Lincoln wrote but never sent a letter to uh, General Meade essentially saying you, you blew it, you could have counterattacked and captured Lee's army whole. And after the Battle of Tupelo or Harrisburg, uh, many afterwards thought that uh, perhaps uh, the Union General A.J. Smith could have counterattacked and captured Forrest and Lee and all their men. Uh, is there anything to that? He, uh, he had an opportunity that was missed. He could have completely destroyed Forrest's corps at that point. But there are issues going on with, with Smith's army as well. The men are on one-third rations. They have been since the second day of this campaign when they found out that all of their hardtack, nearly all, was spoiled. Smith, very impatient to get going on this campaign, had also set out with only half of the required artillery rounds that he was supposed to take on a campaign. He's running low. Uh, much of his, his small arms ammunition was defective as well. He, uh, he's not finished with this campaign, and he knows it, 
but he elects to break off and return to LaGrange, Tennessee, where he can get more ammunition, more food, and continue on with his orders. Um, so so, so he's, he has defeated Forrest in a defensive battle at Tupelo, but his response then is to pull back toward the north. Yes, to get the, the supplies and the ammunition that are required to continue on with his mission. What about the Confederate response? Did they let him go? This is on the, uh, the morning of July 15th, the next day. And when the Confederates realize that uh, Smith has broken off and is heading north, Forrest leads a, a depleted force north and attacks Smith on Old Town Creek, about six miles north of the Harrisburg battlefield. And it, it's another stunning setback for the Confederates, and Forrest is actually wounded in the foot. Is, uh, to his account, the most painful wound that he, he suffers during the war. Smith is then able to uh, continue unmolested back up to LaGrange to uh, resupply when he is uh, given new orders and, and, and sent away from that field of battle. One of uh, Smith's more interesting subordinates at this battle is uh, General Joseph A. Mower, or Mauer, I'm not sure how to say that. Uh, and he's engaged in the, these in the, this fighting on, on the, the day after the main battle uh, as well. Uh, tell us a little bit about him. Fighting Joe Mauer. He, he got that, that, that name, that nom de guerre, here at, at Corinth. Um, one of his subordinates says he was a great general when he was sober. But uh, whenever he had a successful day, he was guaranteed to get full the next day. And he was, uh, he was rather full on the morning of the 15th. He, he, he got pretty drunk pretty quick. And uh, he's ordering charges against the Confederate position early in the morning, and he's, he's on his horse, and the horse is up on two feet. And a young chaplain of the 7th Minnesota is so impressed, he, he, he makes this battlefield sketch of, of this magnificent knight on his charger. And he gets closer and realizes that he is, quote, drunk as a boiled owl. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's, he's a man that has absolutely no fear in battle, but he has no problems with mixing, fighting, and drinking. So it didn't it didn't work to his his detriment, at least in, in this engagement, as the the Confederates once again are, are unsuccessful in breaking the Union line. So when all is said and done, Forrest has been defeated. Uh, well, actually, is it Forrest or Lee who's been defeated? Uh, in your last chapter, you address a lot of the historiographical controversies that have arisen out of this battle, and it it seems like they all or many of them, center on the idea that Forrest, the, the wizard of the saddle, could do no wrong, therefore this battle must be accounted for in some particular way that uh, doesn't show that he was defeated. The day after the battle, Lee himself is riding among his troops as they're bearing their comrades, and he says, boys, this was not my fight. And he tries right, to right. distance This is Forrest saying that. Forrest is saying that, trying to distance yeah, himself right. from this fight. And uh, his supporters over the years have, have continually said that it was, was completely on Lee, that Lee is the senior man on the field. But Forrest's performance on the field of battle on July 14th is just not the Forrest of, of legend that we've come to expect. He makes a number of, of significant errors 
bad choices in judgment. His his decisions on the field actually lead to a number of Confederate casualties. Um, he does hold a, a large part of the responsibility for the disaster there, where he, the the heart of his corps is just is just destroyed, and they're never able to completely recover from this defeat. So how how do writers in the latter part of the nineteenth, early twentieth century? Try to get around that. Lee is the senior man on the field. The, the okay. decisions are his, and therefore the responsibility is his. And Lee never shirked from that. He accepted the responsibility. Um, Forrest refused to command his own men on the field that morning. He uh, it took some persuasion, and he uh, consented only to re- lead Roddy's division, even though. of the men on the field were his. He completely deferred to Lee to tactically lead them on the field. Uh, Put this in other context. This is like General Longstreet at Gettysburg telling General Lee, well, you're here on the field, and you outrank me. You lead my men, and I'm just going to take a a breather and watch. That, because, that would a, not because a happen. division commander or a corps commander is on the field, it doesn't mean they're released from their responsibilities because their superiors on the field as well. One of the uh, sayings you hear, it always sets my teeth on edge when I hear it, uh, is the, the cliche, the winners write the history. <laughs> and anyone who's read much Civil War history knows that at least for the first century uh, after the war, that was not the case. Uh, much of the prevailing interpretation of the war was, was determined by Southern writers, and that's certainly the case here. So did you feel when you were writing this book you were setting up a new interpretation of this battle? Uh, did, did you see yourself consciously engaging with these some of these previous writers? I, I thought that at one point I would be accused of being a revisionist writer, but I realized that those ones that had come before me were the revisionists when they changed what really happened over the course of that month. They, they had, had changed the actual outcome to give it a different spin. And what I truly tried to do was present things as they factually happened. And, and to some may that come across as, as revisionist writing. Well, I, I will say, I, I always tell my students, revisionist uh, shouldn't be a dirty word. Uh, if we didn't revise history, we'd all be out of jobs. Uh, every generation finds new sources and finds new perspectives to write from, so we have new things to say about the past, uh, and if, and that's to be expected. Uh, so, what was it Lincoln said in the, 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 the speech to Congress in 1862 about the quiet dogmas of the past are in, inadequate to the stormy present. Uh, we always need to, to f- rewrite the past to to serve the needs of the present, not to change what happened, but to interpret it in the light that we have. And, and you've got sources here. You, you show, for example, how Stephen Lee puts together a series of four different telegrams and bits and pieces of them and writes his account. But if you actually read the all four originals in the correct order, you get a completely different version of what happened. That's exactly. in terms of how, Lee, how Lee the U.S. tried to, yeah. to state with those that that Sherman and Grant were furious 
with Smith for for breaking away and and running back to to Memphis. And this wasn't the case. Grant and and Sherman were both very pleased, and they wanted Smith to go out and do it again. So if you go back to the, again, to the original sources, then that, that becomes clear. So it's really, uh, as I said at the beginning of the show, this is just a fascinating book for looking at a, a, an event that's not the best-known campaign of the Civil War, uh, but simply digging up something that no one's written about, you know, anyone can do that, but finding a way to uh, help us think freshly about how Civil War history gets written, how sources are uh, used by people who are pleading special cases for someone, in this case, Forrest, uh, and, and then trying to look beyond that, going back to the original diaries and, and so on, uh, is, is really uh, you know, what historians do. You point out, for example, the lack of food in Smith's force is, was considered a weak excuse by some subsequent writers, but you, you said the Union soldiers universally mentioned this in their own diaries. Oh, it's in it's in diary after diary and letters about how they've only got one cracker for the day, and they're they're resorting to foraging, which Smith is 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 not a proponent of. He does not like doing that, but he allows them to because the army would have starved otherwise. And, but many writers they they said, oh, that that that's just a poor excuse for for running with your tail between your legs. So do you have any other projects like this in the future? I've got a, a new book in the works. It's an expanded view on Bryce's Crossroads. Uh-huh. A tremendous amount of information that's, that's come out in the last 35 years since a book-length study was, was conducted. Now, if you're going to, to revise that so that Sturgis is the winner, that would be a challenge. Can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> that, that would be a little bit much, but... Uh, well, this is, as I said, a really interesting book, uh, excellent maps, uh, a great narrative, and one that gives us this campaign in a new light. It is, I, I come away feeling like, okay, this is one of my campaigns now. I know something about this, and I'm anxious uh, to go out and see the sites. Is there anything left to see in the Tupelo or Harrisburg area of the battlefield? There is, but, but you need a guide. And I'm, I'm going to plug my friend Dave Roth's magazine, Blue and Gray. Mm-hmm. Um, last summer, I did a, uh, a issue for him on this subject. We did a tremendous number of maps and also his, uh, his general's tour, which is a part of every Blue and Gray, which leads you step by step by step from LaGrange and ends up at the, the beautiful museum up in Baldwin, Mississippi, the Mississippi's Final Stands Interpretive Center which interprets Bryce's Crossroads and Tupelo. It has several stops inside Tupelo and Old Harrisburg describing where action took place and where different uh, landmarks are. So more to see when you, uh, listeners, when you're traveling and you visit the Corinth Civil War Interpretive Center and then head up to Shiloh, uh, then back south down to Tupelo and... and, uh, see the sites of, of this battle, this campaign as well. Uh, always things to keep us busy. And you well, can even it, visit Elvis's birthplace while you're down there. It's, it's just the whole package. Oh, well, you do not want to miss that. Uh, <laughs> I, I have actually seen that. It's, uh, Shiloh was more interesting, I will say that. To uh, me too. If I, had, <laughs> if I had to choose. Well, Tom, thank you so much for being on. Sorry again we got mixed up last time, but I hope it was worth the wait. I certainly enjoyed reading this book and uh, 
Uh, listeners, you will want to get yourself a copy of Work for Giants, The Campaign and Battle of Tupelo, Harrisburg, Mississippi, June, July of 1864. And Tom, thank you so much for being on the show. Jerry, thank you so much for having me. It's, it's been a delight. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. (laughs) 